Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. On the show tonight, I'll be joined by the wonderful Catherine Little, who is the CEO of Snake. We'll talk to her about the crisis in out-of-home care and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, um, how they are overrepresented in that particular part of the system. And in the second half of the show, we'll be joined by Salwan Button, who's a director of the Luchid um, Institute. We'll talk to him about the fourth anniversary of the Uluru Statement. Uh, so we'll talk through that, where to from here with that. Now, a couple of weeks ago, the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare released a report that provided us with some startling metrics on the scale of uh, Aboriginal children in out-of-home care. So to discuss the findings of the report, who better than Catherine Little, who is the CEO of SNAKE? SNAKE, the national voice of our children, is the national non-government peg body for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. SNAKE works for the fulfilment of the rights of our children to ensure their safety development and well-being. Now, Catherine herself is no stranger to the show. She is an Arundela richer woman from Central Australia. She is a highly um, uh, appraised journalist. Uh, she's worked across all levels of news and current affairs, production and presented news programs from Parja, NITV and the ABC. And like I just said, she's no stranger to Triple R. Catherine, uh, welcome back to the mission. Hello. Thank you for having me back. Absolute pleasure. Um, now, the report found that one in 18 um, children in out-of-home care in this country are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. Um, this is a national shame, is it not? It is. It's, it's heartbreaking. You just you just look at those numbers and you say, how? You know, how do we keep creating this story? Um, and that's, that is the pertinent question. How, how did it come to this? <laughs> Why are we look- in this situation? Why are we in this situation? I think what it is is, um, you know, we, we keep putting dollars in the wrong space, you know. Uh, most of the funding that goes into this area, and there's $6.9 billion, right, $6.9 billion is invested into child protection systems. And of that $6.9 billion, only 16% goes uh, into working with families at the front of it, at the front of the pipeline, so before they hit it. So you know, it, it's it, the whole thing's weighted in, incorrectly, and, and some real transformational change is needed to flip that on its head. Start working with our mob on the ground. Start investing into community-led services and those experts, and start really prioritising indigenous-led solutions because clearly, what we're doing is not working. When you get a, a, a an industry, and I'll call it that, that gets $6.9 billion worth of uh, funding. Do you ever have concerns that the industry gets to such a size that it doesn't actually look to fix the problems that it was designed to address in the first place? Look, I think the, the problem is it's designed to, to, you know, it's the child protection system that they're investing in, and that child protection effectively means these are the services and these are the processes that work with you once you're in significant trouble. Uh, and move children into out-of-home care, that's that's what it does. It, it truly is um, a, a flaw in the way we've invested the dollars in the first place, you know, and, and, and that takes massive transformational and systemic shifts. At, 
this point in time, you know, we've, we're, we're placed like no other, you know, that new closing the gap agreement gives us these four incredible stones to stand on that say, listen, you've got to flip it. You need structural reform. These are the stones that you stand on. These are the foundational pillars. Um, start working with your communities on the ground. Listen to what they're going to say. Invest where the services um, that really concentrate on what a culturally-led solution might look like, that invest in working with families, not not working against families, not terrifying our families, but actually working alongside our families and giving them the supports that they need. So um, I think in some ways we're poised at this point in time to, to make a difference, but there is still significant work to be done to get this story to match to the new leaders and to start standing on those foundational pillars correctly and, and using them correctly. I think one of the worrying things uh, about this, Catherine, is that this, this is a trend, isn't it? We're, we're, we're seeing numbers continue to, to rise um, over, over time. And like you, like, um, you say in um, some of the, the remarks you've made around this over the last couple of weeks, um, one in 18 children, uh, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander kids in uh, out-of-home care, is 11 times the rate of that for non-Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander kids. Yeah, absolutely, 11 times. I mean, it's just, you know, it, 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 this stuff, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? It's an absolute no-brainer. If we're doing, if, if we're still getting numbers like this, using services the way we're using them at the moment in time, of course, that's, that trend is going to increase. And at this point in time, without that significant transformation shift, um, those stats, that rising trend will double by 2029. Um, and we know we've got a, a, a target in the Closing the Gap framework that says, well, hang on, that number needs to reduce by nearly half of that by 2031. So hopefully, hopefully right now, with the work on the new National um, Child, Success, Child Protection Successor Plan, hopefully we're sitting on something. You know, we're sitting on something where governments, uh, and that's both the Commonwealth and jurisdictions, are able to start working differently with their communities, invest differently, and start looking at where the processes can be improved and certainly start concentrating on those those drivers of poverty. You know, most of the families that, that are involved in these uh, in, in, in the child protection system, what they're really dealing with is, is poverty. And we just finished national consultations on this, right? So all around the country and every single state and territory has identified the same thing. Our families are living in poverty. When families, when, when services come in to work with our families, they are overmanaged. Um, there's people that are managing them and, and you know, there's, there's something very really critical in that word, managing. Um, they're coming up with plans for them based on what they perceive, um, I guess, to be the best parenting practices and, and, and their understanding of what poverty looks like and, and how people might react in those really, really, I don't know what you call it, you know, the words always fail me, but, you know, we, we, we use terms like vulnerable or families facing vulnerabilities, but the truth of it is, you know, the system is just not fair. Yeah, and I think one of the things that um, is, is also alarming is that we're potentially losing a, a you know, a generation of kids that um, are losing contact with with their culture, and uh, one thing that the other, the report also showed is that um, fifty two point four percent of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children in out of home care were actually living with um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander carers. So that's you know basically fifty percent that that aren't. Uh, we yeah. know we know the research tells us that um, if kids are going to be in out of home care, it's best that they are surrounded and wrapped around. Mm -hmm. 
within their own culture. Um, that's obviously an alarming statistic as well. Oh, absolutely. And of that number, 81% of them are on long-term and that is permanent care. So, you know, yeah. that, that, that's, that's the way it stays. And what we know undoubtedly is that without fail, when you remove children from their culture, from their community and from their families, the harm is is uh, inescapable. There is significant harm that comes with these processes of disconnecting our mob. Uh, and it might not show up later, but it certainly shows up um, down the track. And, and when people are wondering, well, who am I? And, and where do I belong? That, that, you know, how do you find you? How do you find your gravity? Yeah, I mean, at its worst, out-of-home care is a gateway to juvenile detention, uh, remand, and another another system, the justice system, that um, we know we have a, a, a tragic over-representation in as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I think you'll find that in um, most of our jurisdictions, the majority of children of, of our mob that are in the juvenile justice system have come from the out-of-home care yeah. system. Yeah. So, again, it's, it is this incredible pipeline. If you've, if, you've had, if you've had contact with the juvenile justice system, then you're highly likely to end up in the adult justice system. Like this, it is just it is a tragic pipeline. And once you're in it, you just can't get out of it. And, and that's come up really clearly in the consultations that we've held nationally, and that is that a lot of the time our families are so terrified of hitting that um, pipeline that not only are services almost impossible to get because they just don't exist, you don't want to reach out for help because you know what happens once you once you come into contact with something that moves as quick as this. Look, but this obviously requires a, a multi-jurisdictional um, approach to, to getting near mm-hmm. the reform that is required to address this area. What What... You've mentioned the four pillars, but what is the actual uh, mechanism to, to, to try and get change um, on this front across the country? Look, I think there's a few ways we can do it. So, A, we know we've got believers in the, in the Closing the Gap Agreement and those four pillars. Uh, but we also know that there are a couple of things that could happen and that could happen pretty easily. So that would include, uh, you know, a national commissioner for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children mm. and young people, right? We can legislate for that. That would, would put another lens over what's happening and keep an eye on how things are progressing. You know, this, this is a person that would have the power to compel evidence, to look at investigations, to, to come up with the data, to come up with the evidence where there are significant gaps. It would also lend a, a significant support to those areas that we already have um, state commissioners in place. And, and the evidence is already there that in those jurisdictions that have those commissioners, they're starting to get real bans. So we know that. But, you know, and I know I've said it before, and, and I'll say it again, you know, we do need to increase our funding and our early interventions and prevention services, and we need to invest in our community lead and control organisations, and in particular the early years and those wraparound supports. So there's, a, there's so much, there's so many culturally safe services and so many wonderful people on the ground, experts on the ground who know their families and who know their communities and know what's needed. So, you know, just th- these sorts of things are non-brainers. We also need to looking at ending adoption and starting to establish national standards for implementing the five elements of the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Child Placement Principle. So, for example, you know, delegation of um, child protection decision-making, which we've seen in Queensland and Victoria, and Aboriginal out-of-home care and kinship programs, like those that we see in New South Wales, here in Victoria, the Northern Territory and South Australia. You know, these are incredible programs, but what we are finding in our um, consults nationally is, is 
where they are, there's still weaknesses. So, for example, um, every, every single jurisdiction that has kinship care has said, well, listen, we don't get the same level of support as a foster carer does. Uh, when they come to talk to us, they speak to us as though we're an individual, when in actual fact we're a family. So they miss mm. critical things like, you know, Nana can't get you to school, but Uncle John drives past school every day, you know, there is critical little things like that because they're not looking at our families and communities the way we look at our families and communities. That is, a, is a, as a whole functioning unit. And of course, um, you know, we need to build partnerships with, with our mob who look at what the statistics are, what the story is, and create a story that comes from our lens and our perspective to show what's really happening, where the problems really are and where the solutions lie and more importantly um, where we're seeing progress because often that slips through because the people looking at us aren't us. That's right and I think the, the, the most important thing that we can do in this space as uh, First Nations people is, is paint the picture, tell the story. Um, if it comes from us and it comes from um, a, a place from the heart, um, we're the ones that are best placed to actually speak to the authorities and actually let them know how devastating this is on the ground and how devastating it is for generations of uh, Aboriginal people. And I think the, the consultations that are underway at the moment and any work that happens in this area can actually help inform bigger picture issues too because we know that... Um, let me just check my numbers here. We know that... Um, uh, 30% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families live under the poverty line. Mm. And so discussions like this need to feed into those broader discussions and inequity in our society as well, don't they? Oh, absolutely. And, and it's interesting, um, again, if, if I refer to some of the evidence coming out of our national consultations, what they're saying is, you know, is sometimes people confuse poverty as well. So, for example, a, a lot of our mob, they like to sit on a mattress on the floor and yeah. bring in a couch. Um, that's, that's, that's just a different way of living. And, yeah, sure, these mob might not have a lot of money, but that doesn't mean they don't care about their kids because we're sitting on a mattress on the floor. Um, and certainly, I, I, you know, I know I've lived in many houses where that was the case and visited many cousins and slept on those mattresses. So, you yeah. know, there's a different way of looking at us. And I think the other one that comes up when, when you're dealing with people affected by poverty um, is necessarily understand that when you're talking to them, they're already distressed and distress anger and aggression, when in actual fact it's, it's fear and distress and, and someone reaching out and saying, I don't understand what's going on right now and I'm feeling threatened and I need help um, and right now I don't know what, the, I, I don't know how to, how to get it and that's confused with someone being angry and, and certainly to a point you understand it because, you know, the, your, your voice might start to rise and uh, start to cry, all those sorts of things that come when you feel threatened. You know, a, they know how to speak to us in a way that doesn't scare us and doesn't threaten us. And, and secondly, if we do see it, well, we, we know how to address it and we know what's actually going on. And, yeah, let's be honest, Catherine, uh, uh, the, the, our, our interface and our um, engagement with various government systems and the officers that are sent to represent those systems hasn't been that great over time. So you can understand you know, the level of um, stress if uh, someone from DHHS turns up and or someone from the Department of Health or oh, Welfare yeah. turns up, that, that just adds to the level of stress and, you know, can be detrimental to the assessment as well. Oh, absolutely. What do you look at? I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, it was the white cars. Yeah, and, uh, the red plates. White car, yeah, yeah, you ran really quickly. 
society on so many different uh, levels. Um, thank you so much for the work that you do, Catherine. You've been in the job as uh, CEO of Snack now for, what, four or five months? Is that, is that right? Yeah, yeah, been up to four months. Started in February. And so ha, not quite ha, four months, but getting there. And how are you finding it? Uh, it it's a privilege, you know. It is an absolute privilege to be working with um, our board. You know, there's, we've got some incredible representatives, but the way Snake's structured, we don't only have boards, we have a number of councils and committees and all of those mob, they are the people that live and breathe this on the ground and they're all 100 times smarter than me. So the ability to sit in a room with people that know more money is, is, is an absolute gift. The other thing that I'm finding is because we are involved in these big national consultations around the child protection success and training and early childhood and educational care, the generosity of mob on the ground, you know, to tell their stories, mm. to trust that you can do the work, is it's just phenomenal. And, you know, when they're in that space, you know, they're also very vulnerable because, you know, we're, we're talking about our own families, we're talking about our own communities, and we've had these conversations before and we've had plans before and we've had investigations before and we've had commissions before uh, where very little has changed and yet despite this, they still come back to the table and they start again and they tell you their stories again. Um, you know, what an incredibly privileged space to, to be working in. Well, I, I know what uh, consultations with MOB look like and it's obviously a credit to you and your crew that uh, you're able to create a safe space for these stories to be told because if, if there's no safe space, you will not get the stories and people won't allow themselves to be vulnerable to you. So thank you for, for your work. Um, thanks for coming on the show again. Um, I think this is about your third time now. Your one um, appearance off being a, an official friend of the show, at which point you will receive a um, caramello koala. So um, that's something to look forward to. Um, <laughs> Lockdown, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, thank you so much for your time, and uh, I'll see you further down the road. Pleasure. Thank you, Danny. See you. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Now to our next guest. Um, the Uluru Statement from the Heart is four year old, four years old, turned four just recently. And last week it was awarded the uh, prestigious Sydney Peace Prize, Sydney um, Peace Prize. It was designed to be a gift to the nation from First Nations community and leadership, but was universally rejected by our Prime Minister um, at the time. 
and we've been trying to gather ground uh, ever since. And now, Samuel Button is a Gungari man from southwest Queensland who was raised in Cherbourg with extensive experience working towards the achievement of an empowered and sustainable Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. He has worked in various roles and dedicated basically his entire life to bettering his own people. He's a director on the board of the Lewitcha Institute, and I'm very pleased to say he's on the line now. Salwan, welcome to the mission. Thanks very much. Four years since the Uluru Statement, um, the way I would describe it, a gift to the nation. Um, where are we in terms of fulfilling its ambition? to 
to what is in the statement, and then we'll see how we go from there. But certainly, I think there are mixed views as to whether or not um, it will get as far as, as the statement is describing. I think one of the things that um, I don't know whether it's uh, cause for optimism or cause for um, pessimism, but there actually isn't um, bipartisan support in terms of the best way to approach um, enshrining a voice. I believe the ALP is behind implementing the, the Uluru Statement with its original intent, and that's being through um, a constitutional voice to, to um, Parliament and to the nation. Um, but you, you sound like you remain pragm- um, you're, you're happy to take a pragmatic approach in terms of, okay, well, let's start with the legislative voice. If need be, let's deal with what we've got to deal with, and then maybe down the track we can um, uh, get to where we really want to go on this. Truth-telling um, commission. Um, hopefully, something like that will um, open people's eyes across the rest of the country, and hopefully, lead to something like a Macarena commission, as is outlined in uh, the Uluru State. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Um, before I let you go, Sal, what, what deadly things um, is the Literature Institute working on at the moment? Anything you want to you know, tell us about? 
but um, some of the work that we've been doing uh, more recently is refreshing the work that um, happening in research into, into racism that occurs in, in hospital settings um, around the country and making sure that um, the, the research has been undertaken for a number of years, we can provide some practical advice and tools um, and certainly look at some knowledge translation around that come out of the research that says that racism has a significant impact on our people. And if we are, if we are going to improve and certainly closing the gap, um, between life expectancy for, for First Nations people and the rest of the country, then you have to address racism, racism in its current form within the, within the public hospital, the public health system, um, because it does have a significant impact on the health of our people. Yep, um, and actually, Ken Kieran, while there's a global pandemic on and sometimes split decisions need to be made, uh, we don't want uh, any of those decisions being based on uh, race. Um, Selwyn, thank you so much for your time. Um, uh, you came on at short notice, and I really appreciate that. I'm happy to have a chat to you again. Uh, where are you based, by the way? Okay, lucky you. Victoria, and thanks, brother. Really appreciate it. Thank you for thank you so much. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how.